G'day everyone, my name's Ed Kemp and welcome back to the Wide Open Road podcast series, a podcast series providing insights from retired professional athletes to help current professional athletes transition to life after sport. My mid-season break is over and I have three terrific podcasts to wrap up season one of the Wide Open Road. It's been sensational meeting our guests and providing each of them with a platform to share their ideas and their stories of transition to life after sport. Each guest has done a great job forging their own path in life after sport, however their success has come from hard work and a few doubts along the way. I'll kick off the final three episodes of The Wide Open Road with interviews with two recently retired AFL players who have chosen very different paths in life after sport. Both, however, are well on the way to emulating their on-field success in life off the field. And to complete Series 1 of The Wide Open Road, I interview a key member of the all-conquering Australian women's hockey team, the Hockey Roos, who is now working in athlete welfare and development. She's an Olympic gold medalist and provides some incredible insights into preparing for life after sport. In this episode, we feature Matthew Lewenberger, a former professional AFL footballer who played for the Brisbane Lions and Eston Football Club over 11 years. Matthew represented Western Australia in the 2006 AFL Under-18 Championships and was drafted to the Brisbane Lions with their first selection in the 2006 National Draft. He made his debut against the West Coast Eagles in Round 14 2007 and played 108 games with the Lions. Towards the end of 2015, Matthew transferred to the Eston Football Club, playing a further 29 games in three full seasons. He retired at the end of 2018, despite having a contract on the table for 2019, and moved back to Perth to start the next phase of his life. Please enjoy our discussion with Matthew Lewenberger. Matt, it's great to have you joining us all the way from Perth. Listeners, I'm in Melbourne, um, and this is the first podcast for the Wide Open Road that we've done over the telephone, so forgive me if there's any technical hitches at my end, um, but we'll get into it, Matt. And look, I'd love to start by asking you the fact that you turned down a one-year contract with Essendon in 2019, and obviously you were you had a few plans set in place for life after sport. So how confident were you in leaving the game and starting life as a normal member of society? Good question. Um, oh, how confident was I? No, probably not that confident. It took me... Um took me a long time to probably come to the decision to walk away from the game. Um, the offer was put forth to me by Essendon and I sort of left it pending there for, for quite some time. I think it would have been approximately you know, three to four weeks before I, I actually came to the decision. I went through a bit of a process just between myself and my, my family to try and figure out what it was that I wanted and you know we wanted as a family and, and things like that. And, um, yeah, it's sort of, I, I wasn't confident, but I think as time wore on, it sort of made more sense than to be sitting here today and reflecting back on, on the process to get to where I got to. It's, um, yeah, certainly made the right one. And if you talk about the process, I mean, can you describe the things that you went through in your own mind and in discussions with your wife and your broader family around the reasons why you thought your time was up and... I suppose the conversation you went through with the football club to, you know, knock back a contract that was sitting on the table. Yeah, I mean, oh, look, there's so many different, you know, aspects that, that were in play to, to come to a decision like that. As I mentioned, you, you know, you've got the family life. We never really saw Melbourne as a place where we wanted to, to continue living. Um, we we liked sort of the slower pace um, way of life. I'm from Perth. Um, Jess, my my partner, she's from Brisbane, so we were sort of keen to get on with our life in that sense, and you know, 
side of it with me and where I was at with the game. Um, at the end of the day, it was it was me who had to make the call because it was me who was ultimately going to be, you know, going through the through another year of footy. So look, there were a whole range of issues that played out on that front. I sort of I finished my career basically in in the seconds. So playing VFL footy, I was to sign the contract to be essentially list insurance. Um, it would have been, you know, on the proviso, let's say, Tom Bell Chambers, who was the number one ruck, went down, then that's probably where your opportunity would come. So I, made my, I didn't actually make my decision based on playing VFL football. I based my decision off taking the number one mantle and playing AFL football every week. Do I want to do it? How into it am I? Um, and then probably, you know, to cut a long story short, I was, I was just the passion and sort of drive had worn off, to be honest. I sort of began to see it as, um, you know, just clicking my ticket to get a paycheck at the end of the month as opposed to having that hunger and drive to want to get better every day. And I think I always found that mentality, and you can see it in older players, and it was certainly in reflecting on my time. Um, and I, I just, I never appreciated them for it, and I just didn't want to be that guy, so... I think probably the easiest decision would have been for me to have taken the contract and gone another year. I certainly would be getting paid a hell of a lot more than what I'm getting paid now. Probably would have ended up playing a fair few AFL games this year with the way it's all played out at Essendon. And yeah, it, it just would have been comfortable. But made the decision to, to move on. Sort of felt like I was, I was being a bit selfish because I knew internally how I felt. And yeah, made the call. And when you, when you were making the call and you decided to quit in the or retire, the, the thing that really struck me when you sent me the note the other day was that, you know, you very matter-of-factly said, 12-year AFL career, retired on a Wednesday, started work the following Monday, started while playing. So when you made the decision to finish and you decided to get out of your comfort zone, and clearly that's a, a decision that whilst um, you're probably getting paid less now, that'll I suspect you'll probably catch things up pretty quickly. Can you talk about the the way that AFL footballers' lives have changed whilst you're in the game because you mentioned that, you know, you started to lose the passion and the drive and a number of people that I've spoken to uh, in this podcast series say that, you know, it can become like a, just like any other job. The commitments that you have as an AFL player, um, you know, are, are significant. So can you describe how over the course of your career the life of an AFL player has changed? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's changed at a rapid rate from when I started to, to when I finished. I mean, I started playing, social media didn't exist. So to me, it's kind of, it felt really innocent playing, playing footy in, in that era before then. And then now it's sort of, you just can't escape it. Like, it's it's everywhere you go. Yeah, you, you, you just, you're always open and subject to someone's opinion. You know what I mean? And I think, like reflecting back from when I started till now, it's um, yeah, it's it, uh, that's probably been the biggest change I reckon. And then you sort of, I don't know whether people just put up with it back in the day, but you could get a, getting all these people come like players coming out with mental health issues and things like that. I just yeah, you can you can never you can never escape or please and, and even please everybody. You know what I mean? I think that's probably been the biggest change I've noticed from starting back in 2006 or seven to to now. I mean, social media was around in 2006 and seven, but it was in its infancy. So, like, players weren't on there and interacting with fans like they are today. So, yeah, it's a different world. 
Yeah, I mean, social media keeps coming up. And, and one of the things that you mentioned in the notes that you sent me was that you started studying as a strategy to improve your mental health, and it did take you 10 years to complete your studies. We'll get back to the social media in a minute, but, you know, mental health is becoming an enormously prevalent issue in AFL, and there's certainly been a number of cases over the course of the last couple of years where players have come come out to basically say they've really struggled, they've had to take time from the game, and, and we know Tom Boyd has actually retired as a result. When you started to study, were you just wanting to have a break and a balance from footy from a day-to-day basis, or was it sort of deeper than that? How did it all happen? I, I, I was referred to go and see a guy by Nigel Lappin and Lee Matthews because I was very, I was all, I had all my eggs in the one basket of playing footy, and basically my first three years, I, I played I think twenty to twenty-four games, so obviously played one and. Missed two through injury, so not a great, a great record. So footy wasn't going well. I had all my eggs in that basket, and at 18 years of age, I moved from Perth to the opposite side of the country. Had a really strong friendship group in Perth, really strong connection with mum and dad and whatnot. So you know, it's it's a massive move at 18, and then when the reason you've moved over there, things aren't going so well. You know, I think I think credit to Lee and. and Nice was they were able to pick up that probably a few cracks were appearing for me. Um, I'm not coming on here to say I had depression or anything like that, but like certainly mentally I wasn't, I just wasn't happy. And um, they referred me on to see, see a guy um, in Brisbane and, you know, we strategised where I was at and, you know, the way I was living my life and things like that and where I was at with my footy career and how a lot of, you know, what was making me unhappy I couldn't control being an injury. So the suggestion was to sort of, you know, I had to have something else outside of that that was challenging for me. So, yeah, I started off um, back in 2008, I think it was. I started, yeah, just, I took up a, um, an online university degree through University of Southern Queensland, I reckon, and um, began my, my journey on that front. And then once I picked that up, it was amazing. Yeah, I sort of diversified my life to some degree and... You know, when footy wasn't going well, maybe, you know, uni was, and um, I could see the pathway that that was creating for me. I could see the benefits that that would bring. I just knew I had to stick with it and see it through. And then, obviously, vice versa, because that was a nice smooth sailing, so you'd have challenges and, you know, difficulties with um, with uni, and then maybe footy's doing well. So it sort of balanced my life out really well. I'm grateful that I did it and um, stuck with it. It's a fascinating story that you say that you've just outlined there, Matthew, because clearly Lee Matthews had your best interests at heart and Lee played with and was coached by David Parkin. And I've interviewed David on this podcast previously and he talks about the concept of balance that, that elite sportsmen and women need to have balance in their lives to ensure they're not wall-to-wall, 100% sport every day. And it sounds to me like the injury that you had whilst at the time it was challenging for a whole host of reasons, it actually provided you with a platform to actually go out and explore study as a way to A, probably improve your mindset, but B, more importantly, start that journey of preparing for life after sport. Yeah, exactly right. And it probably it probably took me until about halfway through my degree to actually see any light in the tunnel, if that makes sense. Very much early days, I was just like, it was just ticking the box sort of thing. And I, I was like... It was such a slow process, um, you know, because it took me 10 years to do it. I never really took, like, a year off 
from it or anything like that, you know what I mean? Like, I always kept it going. So, yeah, early days, it's sort of, I didn't really pay too much attention to it. And then once I sort of hit that halfway mark, it sort of all opened up to me as in regards to opportunities and, and and whatnot. So that would have been probably around 2012, I would have, I would say, maybe. Can you describe sort of, I suppose, why you hung in there? I mean, I'm assuming there would have been times when you thought, no, nah, don't want to log in and, and do an assignment or don't want to log in and, and go to a tutor or a, or a lecture. I mean, can you describe sort of your own mindset around why you stuck at it? Because there's plenty of people both inside and outside the sporting bubble that get to a point and they just go, no, nah, I'm done and move on. Yeah, um, I don't really know, to be honest. I think probably, you know, byproduct of my upbringing, I think, like mum and dad were always real big on, you know, if you start something, you see it through. So um, I've got countless examples of that from my childhood where I said I wanted to do something and hated it within a couple of weeks, but I had to see it through. So um, I think that was sort of a behaviour that was built in with me and then also value value education as well. So because it was an undergrad university degree, I could see the benefit in doing it and, yeah, just sort of rolled along with it. I figured if, you know... My time ended early, earlier than I wanted in my AFL career. I could, you know, finish up and just only have a year to go, so, so sort of thing, and that didn't really seem too bad to me. But doing it part-time, I was able to just sort of switch off and just put it in autopilot and cruise along with it to some degree. With respect to the, the doing it part-time, and I'm assuming it's a couple of subjects a year over the 10-year period, and you mentioned that at times it was actually quite challenging to combine both playing and studying. Can you describe sort of what you mean by that and, and what were some of the challenges that you found you had to deal with when it came to football commitments versus study commitments? Yeah, well, you can't shift the, the due date of an assignment or an exam or, and bits and pieces like that. Well, there's plenty of people out there, that, including myself, that have tried, I can tell you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I tried too, <laughs> but you get some, some stubborn course coordinators. Uh, but so many times you, you play a game and you knack it and staring down the barrel of all day Sunday just being you know in the books finishing off 1500 word assignment or something like that it's just it's not fun it's, it's the last thing you want to be doing you might have come off a loss with and you you, you know you ride the emotional roller coaster with that or you might have come off a great win and your mates might have gone out for a few beers after the win and you're like well oh, I can't really do that I've, I've got a big day in the books tomorrow sort of thing so that was the hard part. I mean, I think everyone or anyone who's who's done uni would, would share a similar similar story in, in regards to that, being under the pump with the deadlines to, to meet them and what but um, yeah, I also remember, you know, travelling being in Brisbane with on the road sort of every two weeks. So uh, used to try and get the work done on the plane and things like that, which yeah, you, I think you just had to try and be a bit more creative with, with filling your time. And you've had experiences at, at two clubs, you know, one in the in the sort of what I'd call the outpost of, of Queensland, and even though the Lions have been there for a long time now, um, the coverage of rugby league compared to AFL is enormous, a bit like the other way around here. And then you've come to Melbourne and you've played with the Bombers for a couple of years. Can you describe how the two clubs supported you with respect to your studies? And do you think that, you know, player development programs that you've seen evolve over your 12 years in the game have been effective in supporting players as they start to think about life after sport? Yeah, so um, both clubs had really good... I found they had really good player development pathways there. The thing with them is I think the player has to 
productive to sort them out themselves. I think there's only so much that your player development manager can do in holding your hand to take you to introduce you to people or, I mean, there's countless stories of guys who, you know, are interested in in a field and, you know, they want to meet someone and the player development manager sets up a coffee to sit down with this guy and then they don't show, your player doesn't show or something like that. that. I've, I've heard the frustrations from the player development manager over the years of, players sort of doing that and it's disrespectful because they're not they're not just catching up with someone in the lower ranks of a firm like football clubs have amazing access to to people probably the average punter doesn't get the chance to sit in front of you know and it's sort of it's amazing on that front the opportunity that that presents so if i bring it back to you talking the difference between brisbane and essendon is You've got two different clubs in size. Essendon is a massive club, and it's a wealthy club that's backed by very successful people. There's an array of people from different industries and sectors that players have the opportunity to go and sit in front of and pick their brain. And not that Brisbane doesn't have that, but it's probably not as big. Um, so the, the opportunities that present are probably like one of those big Northern AFL clubs is, is huge for players that want to seek it out. And this proactiveness, I mean, is something that clearly, in my experience, in any form of life, if you actually want something, you've got to get off your backside and go and get it. Can you describe how, through your experience, you've seen your peers leverage, you know, the access and the opportunities that, that certainly a club like Essendon provides? Because in my experience, a lot of players tend to leverage that when it's too late, i.e. either when they've retired or when they're about to retire. And almost, you know, the coterie groups and the board members and so forth almost move on to the next player. So, I mean, what are your sort of experiences in, uh, in that sort of regard with regards to the way your peers uh, were proactive? Yeah, I remember getting told this years ago. is that, you know, you never have the same currency when you leave the game as you do when you have it. So, like you said, if you, you finish the game and then you start making phone calls going, oh, look, I've just finished my career, it's, to the person you're calling, it's not as sexy having a retired player call them versus a guy who's in his prime and the ability to build a five-year relationship. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I remember I remember getting that advice and oh, that was probably, and, and also you just, the advice of just put yourself out there when you go to functions because you never know who you might be talking to. And inevitably, my boss now, who and who I'm working through, I've, I met through through a function just, and I've happened to be sitting next to him by chance. So it's um, the opportunities are there. You might not know them at the time, but yeah, it's sort of, yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many different ways you, you can crack it. But like you said, I think you you've got to do it early and put the time into it and build the relationship and before you just like get to the end and just go oh yeah I've finished up um what can you do for me sort of thing and do you think that you know the majority of AFL players are actually taking advantage I mean there's what 46 48 players on an AFL list these days and so you know there's quite a number of players I understand that they're from all different backgrounds, walks of life, socioeconomic circumstances and education standards as well. And do you think that your peers, in your experience, actually leveraged the power of club as well as they probably should have or could have? Oh, look, I can think of countless examples of guys who have and then I can also think of heaps who haven't. 
if I look back on it, probably like, I reckon once a player gets over maybe like 25 or 26 years of age, they have the realisation that they're kind of over the hump to some degree and it's, um, you know, they start to think about it a little bit. So I think if you ref- if I reflect on my, my career, I think the older guys started to think about it, started to get the ball rolling, meeting the people, doing the necessary study and look, some some didn't do it, but majority kind of do. But I think it's it's when you're a kid. I reckon it's it's probably the hardest to realise the benefit in it because I think you can come in a little bit naive and just think, oh, you know, everyone's going to have a ten plus year career and we're all going to play over two hundred games and probably make the assumption that oh, if you play over two hundred games, you'll you'll make that much money, you won't have to work and things like that. And it's just it's not true. So. I think yeah. Once once guys sort of get over that 25, 26 year year mark, they they begin to think about it. But like I said, there's certainly guys who don't, and I've seen guys finish up in their thirties and and really struggle with it. I mean, and you sort of talk about getting over that hump of you know 25, 26 year olds who are maybe one or two contracts away from finishing. I mean, what are the sorts of discussions, or have you ever had any discussions with either with Lions players or Bombers players that you've got to know? about what you might do in life after sport? I mean, are those sorts of conversations prevalent in the AFL system in your experience? Yeah, massively. Like, my friendship group towards the end of my time and playing in Essendon, the majority of them were certainly over that 25 years of age and, yeah, very much a part of the conversation. And, you know, I probably would say I had seven or eight really close mates from Essendon who I still keep in contact with and, each and every one of them have got their own thing going on that the day that they do retire, they will be able to fall back on something. So, yeah, I think as I got older, that that became a part of the conversation for sure. And the falling back on, you know, something else is clearly important when it comes to getting yourself prepared. Can you describe, and you mentioned this at the start of our conversation before we switched the the record button on, you know, you probably could have earned a lot more money taking another contract but you decided not to I mean can you describe what sort of you know potential pressures that that places on you when you're going from earning you know probably what I'd call you know top quarter on money when you you know for your age and your peer group outside of football to to maybe you know cutting it by a third or two thirds or however it was just from a day-to-day perspective of managing finances and all the other bits and pieces that go with having children and running a family yeah yeah I mean it's tough I mean I'm probably fortunate that I'm a bit dorky. I guess I love personal finance. I'm interested in it. I read about it. I watch YouTube videos on it. I kind of linked in with the study that I did. So I kind of, I crunched the numbers to know what it was going to look like. And I had no hidden surprises. But I can see if you if you don't understand it or if you um, live in a false world where you think you're going to be in the highest tax bracket for the rest of your life and you've got a mortgage that reflects that and then you drop your wage, it, it could be pretty scary. So um, for me personally, I was lucky. I, I knew what I was, I was getting myself into, but yeah, I, I can see how that could be challenging. And then I've, I've, in my time, I can think of a lot of guys who, you know, finished up playing and they've had to sell the family home because I'm assuming that they can't afford the repayment and things like that. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's real, like it's uh, the the money does disappear. So it's and yeah, you gotta you gotta be ready for it. I mean, this risk 
being ready for what happens after football is, I suppose, to a certain extent, counterintuitive to the, I guess, the mindset of the average AFL footballer. And what I mean by that is that the majority of AFL players, if not all of them, are you know risk takers, and you've got a short-term mindset around the next training session, the next match, the next weight session, uh, versus the fact that generally you're going to be living on the earth for at least 50 years when you actually finish playing. So there is also that need to have what I'd call a long-term plan in place uh, to ensure that you can get to the other side and transition to something rather than out of football into something else. I mean, when you started to go through the mindset of the study and starting to form your own views on what you were actually going to do, how important were mentors to you in coming and reaching the conclusions to exactly where you're going to end up when you finished? Yeah, it was the for me that was the most important important thing. I met I met some brilliant people, and I when I reflect back on my time in footy, it's a, it's a real positive tour because I've got the opportunity to meet people I probably wouldn't have been able to meet had, had I not been playing footy. And lucky enough to still remain in contact with a lot of them and lean on them for advice and help and whatnot to this day because I was able to build, like we spoke before, build the relationship over the years to the point now where you, they're friends sort of thing. So, yeah, like I said, I met some, some great people. Um, it turned out, I guess, that my boss is, has been has been some somewhat of a mentor for me because I got lucky I just got really lucky I sat beside him one day at a, at a Essendon function and um, you know he sort of said oh what are you interested in and um, I said oh you know oh, I said oh the property sort of sphere interests me to some degree and at the time I was having a, having a go at a low key residential sort of development and I ended up butchering it and um, when you say butchering it, what did you? What do you, can you can you sort of expand on that? Yeah, long story short, I um I, I signed the build contract with the cheapest build builder, and oh, there were there were a whole range of issues with it. So I, I made a huge huge mistake with it, really, and it was more money on the line. And um, yeah, I sort of ended up leaning on Tim um, as time went on for help and advice because I was trying to manage something that was going terribly wrong from Melbourne up in up in Brisbane, so so fortunate really to have been sitting next to him that time and for him to, you know, have take the time to check in with me to see how it was all going and then to get to a point where I was actually able to lean on him for advice and things like that. Um, oh, just very lucky. I think in the same time, you, you know, and you'd probably agree with this with respect to your football career, you make your own luck. And so from that perspective, you know, being proactive and actually picking the telephone up and, and asking for help I think is a is a really powerful thing, not only for the individual but for the person who's, you know, picking up the phone, uh, who's being asked for help because I, in my experience, I don't think I've ever met anybody that has said no to someone when they've actually asked, you know, for half an hour of their time to get some advice. And, I mean, the mistake that you've just described with the, with the property project that you're involved in, that must have been incredibly difficult at the time but also very helpful from a learning perspective, you know, moving forward when it came to uh, what you're going to do uh, for the rest of your life. So Yeah, well, that's exactly how I see it. I, it. In a way, it was one of the best things that happened to me because it's in my nature where it went so wrong, I had to learn how it went so wrong, if that makes sense. Yep. So I don't know if I've mentioned my, the job that I'm doing now is a quantity surveyor, so basically cost of construction um, and cost management side of, of building. So that skill set there would never have allowed me to have been in the situation that I'll 
was in at that point in time. So, yeah, I mean, had that not happened, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing today. And what I learnt out of that experience, I, I learnt so much more out of that experience than I did by reading, you know, the university textbooks and, and whatnot regarding it. So, like I said, when your money's on the line, it's, um, yeah, you, it's scary. It's, it, it's no one wants to be in that position. So um, that's how I became interested in what I'm doing. And I went through a process to realise that that's what I wanted to do. I, to my background was I did an undergrad degree in economics, so I guess I could could have, you know, gone down finance and, and that sort of avenue. Um, and I kept coming back to this property side and this construction side. And I felt, you know, if, you, if I could control my costs, which would be, or understand controlling the costs, then that would make the whole development side easier. And that's how I became more interested in doing the quantity surveying part. So then I took up additional study to channel in to what I wanted to do. So it was a, it was more of a, a process of elimination for me than anything. So um, it was more about learning what I didn't want to do as opposed to what I wanted to do, if that makes sense. Oh, look, it makes perfect sense because I think... Uh, even though from an AFL player's perspective you might have been seen as being inverted commas old from a career point of view you're still very very young um, not not only from an age point of view but also just experience and actually getting out there and, and getting your teeth stuck into something else so I mean I think one of the, the key things that I think anybody in any walk of life needs to do as they're young is to my mind find out what they don't want to do and certainly in my experience, talking with with young students, friends of my children, parents of kids that we know, you know, I'm a big believer in them taking a year or two off when they finish school just to go and get a, a bit of experience in life before they sit down and and work out what they want to do maybe for the next who knows how long. And I think that careers these days are going to be very different moving forward compared to when you know when I grew up in the in the 80s uh, you know careers are quite were quite linear back then but you know people will be jumping around a lot so I think it's really important that people you know do something that they're enjoying and that they like as opposed to doing something just because they have to do it and I think that's where my big worry comes in with athletes who are not prepared for life after sport that they may end up having to go and do a job that they don't like purely because they've got no other options and Hopefully this podcast for all professional sports people, men and women out there, is instructive in just listening to the stories like what you're conveying now, Matthew, is the fact that you do need to be proactive, you do need to have a plan, and you do need to get organised in order to ensure that you can actually go out and do what you're doing, which is enjoying something that you uh, that you want to be involved in um, as a career for life after sports. So I think it's a, it's a brilliant message, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and, and look, if we, we sort of switch gears a bit now, I'm interested in talking a little bit about the AFL bubble. You were in it in Brisbane. Um, I'd really love you to describe what it was like up there compared to what it's like in Melbourne at one of the big four AFL clubs. Yeah, look, it's um, completely different, to be honest. Take Brisbane, for example, you, you're, for starters, I think you mentioned it earlier, you're in rugby league heartland, so people... I wouldn't say I care too much about the AFL. They, they love state of origin. I think we probably sit third, third behind league and union. So, um, and with that, you, you mean you don't get the crowd sizes. So when I first got up there, it was sort of post the three-peat from the early 2000s. We'd be playing in front of high 20s to low 30s at the Gabba. And, and that, was, that was cool. That was really good. But towards my end, 
you know, we were quite a poor side. Um, and we were, I reckon, we're playing in front of like 11,000, 12,000 most weeks. Um, and that's, that's pretty grim when you compare it to a club like Essendon where it feels like every second week there's a blockbuster. It's either a Friday night game, which is generally draws a huge crowd or you've got an Anzac Day or a Dreamtime or just feels like every second week you're celebrating or a part of some milestone match, you know what I mean? And then people are just... There's just so many more Essendon fans than there are Brisbane fans. And... Um, that can be that. That's quite con- consuming. I think. I mean, I never really s- suffered it or had any issues with it because you know I wasn't a superstar. But if you, you compare, say, the superstar of Brisbane to the superstar of of Essendon, they're polar opposites. Really, one I compare probably Dyson Heppel to Simon Black. Simon Black could go to a restaurant and have a few beers at a pub and go largely unnoticed and be left alone. While if you out with Hep and he's got the dreadies and you know he's a captain of Essendon in Melbourne it's um everyone sort of wants a bit of his time and, and wants a photo or wants to talk to him or so on, on that front you know it's very different and and what's it like as a professional sportsman playing in those what I call those two very very different spheres 11,000 people at the Gabba Probably the weather's pretty nice, though, so from that perspective, you're not running around in the freezing cold um, versus running out in an Anzac Day game in front of 95,000 people, which really is like a finals sort of atmosphere. Can you describe the the differences, and did you find at any time in your career where those sort of situations, especially in Brisbane, may have sort of sapped your motivation and, and made it you know doubly hard to go out there and perform? Yeah, I never really um, noticed it in my time at Brisbane, probably because I was just used to it, you know. Like, it's, um, I didn't know any better or any different because that's where I started. And prior to that point, I hadn't been anywhere else. And I enjoyed it. Like, I, I really enjoyed playing footy in Brisbane. And I found the support base really great. They'd get behind you. They were they were passionate. They were small, but they were, they were into it. And then, obviously, the low-key life that came with playing footy in Brisbane really suited me and my personality. I'm sort of a bit more laid back. I don't really, I don't have social media. I don't chase likes or notoriety or whatever that is. I was very happy just being up there and and sort of behind the scenes. And then you come to Melbourne and obviously, yeah, you're playing in front of 90,000. That's really cool. I think that's one of the coolest things I've ever done. I, I imagine I'll be sitting back in, you know, 60, 70 years' time or in a long time from now and just being able to reminisce on those. I played in two Anzac Day games. I, I imagine I'll remember them for the rest of my life. So you certainly remember them a lot more than playing in front of 11,000 people at the Gabba. But, um, yeah, both both had their, their pros. I sort of wouldn't, wouldn't knock the experience I had in Brisbane, but it's um, you certainly aren't playing in, in, in front of the same seats as you are with Essendon. And when you when you decided to leave Brisbane and you moved to the moved to the Bombers, you were a free agent and then made the decision to go. Was that a hard decision, or was it a decision that you thought you needed to make in order to reinvigorate your career or reinvigorate your passion for the game? No, it was an easy one to make. I mean, for I think rucks are kind of the one position where you can be forgiven for for making a decision like that. Like uh, my time at Brisbane towards the end, Steph Martin came on the scene just overnight became one of the best in 
best in the league as a ruckman. Um, so my spot was gone. So it was either stay up there and play reserves or, you know, try and try and make it somewhere else. So it was sort of mutually agreed by both myself and Brisbane that that would be the best thing to do. So that was an easy decision to make. And then it was just a matter of trying to figure out where was best to go. So I had to make the decision, obviously, for myself and footy and then also for um, for my family and came to the conclusion Essendon was was a good place to go. And did um, did you have a manager that helped you go through that? I mean, what, what's the can you describe sort of briefly the process that an AFL footballer goes through when they're wanting to actually move clubs? Because I, I'm assuming it's not as simple as just picking up the phone and saying to Club X that, look, I want to come and play for you. I mean, can you describe the process that you went through? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I'll forget the forget that period of time anytime soon because I, I hated it. I didn't enjoy it at all. It was sort of, um, you know, clubs hear that you're, you're on the move and those that are interested, they want to talk to you and they want to put their pitch towards you and they want to figure you out and see where you're at and what you think of them. So, yeah, you tend to do, you tend to have a lot of meetings. I remember flying to a few destinations to meet with people and things like that and, and this is all happening in like a three-week period and I just remember waking up at 2am in the morning just stressing over where, like having no idea where I was going to be living with, you know, my my partner and nine-month-old son in a month's time and it was sort of small world problems, right, but it it was a little bit unsettling. It wasn't really something I wanted to go through again, so. But do you think that, and this is interesting because there's always this perception that AFL players and professional sportsmen, women for that much, have really, really cool lives and that you know living inside living life inside a, a sporting bubble is just amazing when the reality is really different and i mean there's not that many people that get told where they need to go and work you know they, they, you know we have a choice as to what we want to do whereas an afl draftee at least for the first couple of years of their career is basically told who their who their employer is and that employer could be in in melbourne it could be in sydney brisbane adelaide perth uh, so i mean can you describe your thoughts around the way that that process unfolded because it sounds to me like, you know, you pardon the pun, you're very much like a piece of meat. There's probably a few people out there who want to buy you but they're going to probably buy you on their terms as opposed to yours. Yeah, it's difficult in that sense. And I, think, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. I think maybe it's, if you're a genuine superstar, maybe it's it's, it's easy. I don't, but I don't know. With that probably comes a whole different level of pressure and scrutiny and, and whatnot. So I think, oh yeah, I don't think it matters where you're at or what you're doing in your career. I don't, don't imagine it be something you want to be doing come every contract. But um, yeah, you've got no say. Like you get drafted and you're committed for, on your two-year contract. So I've seen, seen guys really struggle with that, especially up in Brisbane because no one's really getting drafted from Queensland. So you have like a lot of, a lot of kids come over and some, some do really well and adjust to it and love it and others really struggle with it and you know if you're a Perth kid who's relocated to Brisbane and you're missing home it's hard to get back for a weekend if you get it off so you're kind of pigeonholed to to that city for, for the football season. And so does that mean I mean I've always been of the view that being drafted at the age of 17 or 18 is too young if you've got a young boy or, or female AFL player who is looking to get drafted. You've got year 12 studies as well as probably packing in as much 
football development work as you can in order to give yourself the best chance of being drafted. And I just don't see that as being a particularly smart way to go when it comes to setting yourself up for life after sport. I mean, what's your view on the on the draft age? I mean, you were drafted as a young as a young man. You had to move, as you said, across the country uh, to a city I suspect you probably hadn't spent a hell of a lot of time in. So can you just, I mean, what are your views? Do you think that a drafting at the age 17 and 18 is, is about right? Or, or would you think that a 20-year-old would be able to adjust a lot quicker to life in the AFL system? Yeah, I mean, I can probably, I can see arguments for both sides of it. I mean, I love American sport, NBA in particular. So, I mean, not too many nominate for the draft straight out of high school, which is ultimately what we do here in Australia. A lot of them go to college, and um, so they're getting picked at around that, you know, 20-ish mark, um, a year or two later than probably we are. Yes, I do think it's good and there's merit on that front. I also think that, you know, at 18, our careers our careers are so short that, I mean, well, if you get picked up at 20 and then reflecting back on where I'm at, I probably had, what, a 10-year career. So, yeah, I, th- I think I'm probably more in favour of, of having been picked up at 18. I, I don't really have an issue with it. I don't think there's long enough to really... You don't get paid like an NBA player, for example. Like it's not like you can have a five-year NBA career and you're done for life, sort of thing. With footy, every year kind of counts in regards to that front. So, from a business perspective, I can sort of see starting at 18 versus 20. So, yeah, I, I, I'm impartial to it a little bit, to be honest. I can sort of see the argument for both sides. Yeah, because it, I mean, it's, it's always been something that's it's, it's interesting, and from my perspective, and you look at. The college basketball scene, as you as you've just described, and clearly, if you're a basketball fan, you may have come across a book called The Legends, which is about three legendary NCAA college basketball coaches in the US, and it's quite amazing the you know the size of the you know the NCAA basketball over there and the power that it has and the amount of people that go along to the games and so forth, which is very very different to the to the way that young AFL players are developed. You know, because a lot of these guys, as you say, are going to essentially college, university, and then they're moving into the to the professional ranks. Now, I'm conscious of, of our time, so we'll get cracking on a couple of things, Matthew, and then I'll let you go and, uh, and and play with the children. Although I suspect they're probably in bed like mine at the moment. Yeah, fast asleep. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about you know full time footy, and do you think that being a full time footballer makes you actually a better player? Uh, no, I don't. I think the game is almost more mental than it is physical, to be honest. And um, I've heard so many guys say they played their best footy when they kind of checked out and didn't care, if that makes sense. Like, is that because they're just? It's all about the mindset of relaxing and not being. Because it sounds to me like, from what you've described, that is playing AFL football can be quite stressful. And on top of the fact that you know you're trying to get a kick every week, you're trying to get a game every week. You're probably depending on the position you're playing, you're probably competing with three or four people internally as well as the players that you have to play against every week to actually continue to perform well and, and get picked. So that must be mentally quite draining when it comes to just getting yourself up week in, week out, day in, day out to, to keep keep going. Oh, it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, people ask me about life now. Life now is so simple compared to life playing because everything you, you've just mentioned... It, it's just internally you're questioning it all the time like like you said you've got internal competition within your team that no one sees and, and that's every day every hour you're at the club doing something physical and competitive 
years. You've obviously got your direct competition on the weekend. You got to answer to your, your coaches, your teammates. There's different layers of coaches as well. You've got the senior coach. You've got your line coach. You've got your your rock coach from FMA. If, if you're really good, you've generally got media who's writing an opinion on you, and you've got to answer to them. And you want to try and prove your point to them. You've got fans who who are going to love you at some point in time and they're also going to get frustrated with you at some point in time. So there's all these different avenues and aspects that are just, you know, chipping away at you and attacking you mentally that you've just got to be really strong to be able to deflect them and just, you know, stick the process and keep doing your day-to-day bits that help you be the best you can be. It's obviously clearly quite draining. I mean, can you describe the relationships that you have with people within the club and what I'm talking about here is, is, is that there's all this saying now that you know the, the senior coach of an AFL team is really a strategist and does all of their work during the week and then everything unfolds on the weekend um, they're obviously pulling the strings but there's a whole lot of other people in the box on the boundary line helping make moves making suggestions and you know as I understand it there's plenty of coaches out there that actually don't take a lot of training sessions during the week so, I mean, what's your relationship, or what was your relationship like with Lee Matthews when you were at Brisbane, other coaches at Brisbane, and then with uh, John Walsfold at the Bombers? Yeah, I mean, I was probably, oh, I feel like I was almost too young to really have an opinion on Lee. Everyone asked me, and rightfully so, like, you know, the best I've ever played, right? So, everyone wants to know about Lee Matthews. I, I just feel like I was too young to really, to remember him. I remember him for being, like, you know, a pretty ruthless operator, and... Um, just how, how does a young a young boy from Perth, seventeen or eighteen years of age, who is is wandering into the Brisbane Lions for the first time, and he meets the greatest player of all time, who happens to be the coach? I mean, describe how you felt when you first met the coach. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'll never forget it. I, I was probably more taken back by meeting guys like John Brown and Simon Black because you know I'd seen them play. Like Lee, I, I wasn't digging up videos from the eighties to watch Lee Matthews play. So that was sort of, his his aura was more off hearsay, you know what I mean? So, yeah. well, guys like John Brown and Simon Black, I was actually able to watch them play and form my own opinion on them over the years before getting drafted to just realise how good I thought they were. And, and Brisbane at that time had heaps because they were, a lot of them were coming to an end at the end of uh, having had their three-peat. So guys like Nigel Lappin were floating around, Chris Scott, Chris Johnson... Luke Powell was there and he managed to play, play on for quite a while longer so um, I more remember that as opposed to, to Lee because when AFL was becoming a dream and sort of becoming a reality those guys were winning the premiership year on year so that, that to me was the coolest. And what, what did they teach you? I mean those guys like I mean they, these, these players are legends at that football club and, and may end up being in the, in the AFL Hall of Fame over the course of the next you know, 10, 15, 20 years, guys like Jonathan Brown, Nigel Lapp and, you know, Simon Black, Brownlow medalist, uh, Norm Smith medalist. I mean, what were the things that you took from guys like that when you first moved into the AFL system? I just remember being taken back by how humble they were. They were just really nice guys who were prepared to give their time to talk to you and make you feel welcome. And, you know, they'd been through it all before because none of them were born and raised in Brisbane. So, you know, I like to have... Nice lap and look out for you and and like I mentioned before, so observe that you're probably you know not doing so well 
Um, he probably, you know, if I was caught up with knives now, he probably wouldn't even remember that, you know, but that's something I remember. So I, I was just taken, I felt like they had every right to just be arrogant and, um, you know, you had to earn their trust, you know, cut from that old school because they were fierce competitors. They were as tough as they came, those guys from that, that Brisbane era. So I, I just remember being taken back by just how caring and, and, and nice they were. And that probably leans into the way that these guys are perceived outside of the game. They're certainly very well respected and everything that you see of those three, and no doubt plenty of their peers as well, is that they're just decent human beings. And they've clearly transitioned to other parts of life from sport and no doubt done it very successfully. Can you talk about and describe the transferability of your skills that you learnt inside the AFL sporting environment and how that might, and how those lessons might be helping you in quantity surveying, you know, as a another career? Yeah, um, I, I, I reckon I use every day, I use, you know, mental techniques I've developed from like a performance, psychological performance point of view. Like um, I'm finding starting out this new role as the Q, as a QS like quite challenging. Like it's, um, you know, working on a computer for the first time, being at a, a desk the whole day, the knowledge and content is just, and the numbers and things like that, it's its just something I'm not used to. And I find it quite challenging. And it, at times it can be quite overwhelming. And, you know, football can be quite challenging and overwhelming too. So, and we're probably fortunate in the sense that we, we get given a lot of tools mentally as footballers to be able to address that and break that down. So I, I pick up every day. I don't even realise I'm doing it where I'm using techniques that I would use in football when I was feeling like I was in an uncomfortable situation in my day-to-day life as a QS trying to figure it out. So I think I think a lot does translate. You're playing elite sport you, and you're in a team environment. You, I couldn't bear the thought of letting someone down. And, and I couldn't, as a teammate, I think we're all cut like that. No one wants to be that guy who made a costly player that cost a goal, for example. Um, and that probably translates in the way that I still hold that belief today in, in the work life. So um, punctuality, football, you can't be late as football. It's, it's military-like in the sense that if you, you can't get the, the little things right, then, um, you know, if I roll, roll in at 9.05, I've been a part of clubs where the entire side would get punished for that. So Were you, were you ever one that uh, was the cause of the punishment? No, no, I was, I was lucky. I mean, I, I had a father who drilled that into me as well. He's a, a dad's Swiss, so he's a very, very punctual man. Well, it sounds like he, what is he, he's, he's like a Swiss watch, always on he time. Is, yes, and they, they pride themselves on that too, so <laughs> I, um, I learnt, yeah, not to be late. Matt, we're about to wrap up. I mean, I think a couple of things have come through from this conversation. Thank you very much for, for giving us your time. A couple of things, you know, Family support clearly has been really important to you. You know, education, you clearly value education and that's obviously been jumped into you from an early age by your family. You've clearly been very focused when it comes to not only your sporting career but preparing for life after sport and and anyone who studies for 10 years to get to where they need to go uh, clearly has a lot of focus Um, and clearly you're very strong in the mind when it comes to meeting challenges and ensuring that you're doing the right thing day in, day out, whether it's on the field of play or in the office uh, estimating how many nuts and bolts you're going to need to build a building. As we wrap up, and I ask this question of every one of my guests, 
What are the, the sort of the three key pieces of advice you'd give your 20-year-old self about life in professional sport if you knew then what you know now? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think um, I think the first one I'd have would be to just leave, my, leave the baggage at the door, essentially, as in don't take work home and stew about it. I think early on, prior to kids, I lived with footballers, so it was, it was very all-consuming. You, you know, you'd come home, you'd talk about it, you'd, um, you'd ride the emotions, whether it be a win or a loss, and well, it's just too much, you know, like, so I, I wish I, and that's a, it's a tough thing to do. Like it's easier said than done. Just you know, park, park your thoughts at the, day, the moment you leave the club. And then, I mean, that's no, and that's no different to any work life. And when you have a, a crappy day at the office, or you've, you've you've got a project that you're struggling with, whatever it might be, I, I agree with you. It's damn tough mm. to to sort of park it at the door. Yeah, and I figured it out late, and, and I reckon kids really helped me with that front because you sort of didn't matter how crap a day you had, you'd sort of come home and general, for the most part, you know, they're, they're pretty up and about and they're happy to see you when they haven't seen you all day. So, And that kind of, you come home and if you had a really crap day, you'd just be like, yeah, like, geez, I'm stressing over something that's just so small and minor, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I reckon early days in my career, I, I, I just... Yeah, I, I brought home a lot of suitcases every at the end of it, each day from the footy club, and I wish I just left them there and picked them back up in the morning. So that would be my first, I reckon. Um, a second, I'd probably say don't be so trusting. Upon reflection of like my career, I, I didn't, re, I didn't, I never played, and the bulk of my career was done at Brisbane. I never really played in, in a successful side, or yeah, I'll put it that way, successful side. I, and being a basketball fan, you, you know, you hear. Joel Embiid, and it's you know it's taken the world by storm for people who follow sport, and, and that's trust the process. And I, I probably said I was almost too trusting. I just assumed, you know, that the tide would turn, and you have a couple of years at the bottom, and then it would, it would you know, turn and, and be good because you know that's what the draft is set up to do, right? It's to incentivise the teams that are at the bottom to to eventually come good, and that just didn't happen. And I think I just sort of sort of sat on my hands a little bit, just expected it to happen. And how, well, how, do you, how are you feeling now with, uh, with your, I mean, no doubt plenty of your old teammates in Brisbane doing really, really well? Oh, mate, I'm pumped. Couldn't be happier. Like, I just, there's some guys there who I'm just, just so happy for. Like, I think Daniel Rich, like, he's played 200 AFL games. He might have played one or two finals. Like, yeah, I think I read something about that a couple of weeks ago, and he's apparently having the best year of his life. Yeah, so... I feel like I was there for the majority of his journey. And he's, you know, a guy like that, Dane Zorko, those guys have played in some horrible losses, been in some horrible sides. And when you're winning, you know, four or five games in a year, because I was there with them, it sucks. And, yeah, I hope they do really well. Obviously, them and Essendon, and I'll be supporting. So, And they're the best team win. So, yeah. <laughs> Look, Matthew Lewenberger, thank you so much, mate, for joining us today. Uh it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. It sounds like, uh, based on the recording, that uh, everything is okay from a technical point of view. Um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day in Perth, and I hope you enjoy life after sport. So thanks very much. No dramas. Thanks very much for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'd love to know what you think, so please email me at edward underscore kemp at bigpond.com if you'd like to share your thoughts, suggestions or recommendations with me. And if you happen to know a retired professional athlete who might like to share their story, 
please contact me as I'd love to speak with them. And if you do like what you hear, please subscribe to the Wide Open Road podcast and share this podcast with your friends. And remember, our next episode will be released in two weeks' time. Until then, all the best.